On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news in the ASC industry, discuss a recent study on wrong site surgery, and in our focus segment, interview Heather Hayes from Surgical Information Systems about considerations when choosing an electronic medical record system. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 192 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for June 30th, 2023, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We'd like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape, and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of the recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So, Sue, I'm uh, looking at you in your winter coat, <laughs> me in my short sleeve shirt. We're down in our oh. studio here, yes. and uh, what is it, like 85 degrees outside, but yes. our studio is like 50. <laughs> yeah, so right, the other part of the house is comfortably cool, but not freezing, but you come down here and it's a little chilly. Yeah, I guess so. I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine, but... Uh, well, I hope everyone is enjoying their summer. Um, we we decided to redo our backyard this year, so mm -hmm. it's a major project, and uh, it will take several months to do. So we're not going to get much use uh, of our backyard, but, you know, it actually hasn't been a big problem, right, Sue? Yeah, well, with the air quality, we're getting all the um, smoke from the wildfires in Canada, so... There's a lot of times that we really can't go outside comfortably. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was driving back from New York City mm -hmm. yesterday. It was bad in New York City, but driving back, um, I, 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 you know, I, uh, I couldn't keep any windows open in the car. I had mm -hmm. to turn the recirculating on. It was bad, and I have this terrible cough right mm -hmm. now. So, I think um, definitely a couple of our clients have asked us about what they should be doing. Uh, about this, and I think the best advice we have for everyone is, you know, to as part of your pre-op process. Especially if you're in an area where the air quality is at a red level, which means that you really should minimize the amount of outside uh, exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, just remind the patients how important it is for their 
their lungs to, uh, you know, especially just prior to surgery to, you know, abstain from outside activities. It's kind of a terrible thing to say during the summertime, but yeah, and uh, but it, it's bad. I mean, we live in is. a forest, so I mean, the the you know that that uh, stuff just like sits right down here. And when I was driving back from New York, that's what I was following in the valleys, uh, yeah. especially in Pennsylvania. I mean, it just sits there for for long periods of time. So be very careful. Also, you know, make sure your pre-op nurses are asking questions mm-hmm. about whether anybody has an ongoing cough, like I, like this terrible cough I have, mm-hmm. uh, and whether that might have any impact on the course of their surgery. Yep, and even the the pre-op assessments, you know, really listening carefully to the lungs, just right. just that heightened sense of awareness. And I guess for the um, filtration system, I don't know. Oh, I've heard differing point. views on whether, like, when this clears up. Do people then, you know, change all the filters and that kind of thing to kind of start fresh? Or maybe just having more frequent checks on that because, they're, you know, it could be kind of – the technical term, I think, is gunking up the, mm-hmm. the air conditioning system. But, um, you know, you really have to kind of watch that. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, hopefully this is going to resolve itself shortly, but I think it would be wise to expedite the uh, replacement of those filters in your system. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I, I was actually down in New York because one of our largest projects ever um, for Ambitory Healthcare Strategies was approved uh, on uh, Thursday. It's a project in Buffalo, New York called Maple Mirror. Uh, they got their final approval from the New York State Public Health Council, and we're very excited. Hope to open that uh, facility in March of 2024. So congratulations to the, the team at AHS and the team uh, with Maple Mirror that uh, put this project together, and it is going to be huge. So we're very, very excited about that. And also, uh, really great news where uh, mm-hmm. Ambitory Healthcare Strategies is welcoming Christina Norman as our newest regulatory specialist beginning in a few weeks. Uh, because Ambitory Healthcare Strategies is continuing to grow at a rapid pace, we've been uh, having to hire more people. We've actually mm-hmm. hired four yep. uh, more people. I can't announce the other ones right now, but uh, Christina will be uh, joining us very shortly. And I'm optimistic that, uh, well, you know, those of you that follow us have heard her on the podcast, have heard her on some of our boot camps, and she has been a friend of ours for a very long time. And Sue, two weeks, I think, uh, the administrator's boot camp's coming up. Barely, barely over a week, actually. Actually, you're right, right. Seems like we just finished the the director of nursing boot camp, and then a month later, we've got Mm -hmm. the business office manager's boot camp. So if you haven't signed up, there's plenty of space left. Uh, You know, our summer... uh, as you can imagine, the, the summer boot camps don't tend to uh, have the attendance that mm-hmm. the uh, the ones later in the year. So there's plenty of time and uh, plenty of space. So uh, go to our website at ASCPodcast.com. We'd love to have you join us. Don't forget, even if you can't attend all four days of the live uh, virtual yeah. conference, um, you get recordings of it for and access to those recordings for six months. And, and don't forget, it's not just about that virtual mm-hmm. conference as though – it's that mentoring, the uh, weekly drop-in sessions, which we uh, we have a lot of fun. And we should yeah. mention that uh, we have moved our uh, weekly drop-in sessions from Saturday mornings at 10 uh, a.m. to uh, Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So if you uh, if you have not signed up to be a patron member because of our uh, Saturday sessions, now it is during the work week. And uh, uh, we've had some pretty good attendance, so I think we're going to keep it at that for a while. We have, and I think... A lot. We've had some different people that maybe weren't able to join on the Saturdays, and especially like you said with the summer. Yeah, you know, it just gives people um, kind of their weekends off. So uh, a lot of news going on. Sue, why don't you uh, start with uh, an uh, OR magazine article? 
Okay. So in OR Magazine, there was an article by Adam Taylor on 61523. It discussed a study um, presented in the Joint Commission Journal on Quality and Patient Safety from February that reviewed wrong site surgeries. Um, and here are the main points of that. The three specialties with the highest risk of wrong site surgeries are orthopedic, which is um, at the highest risk, then neurosurgery followed by urology. And the most common contributing factors were failure to follow policy and protocols and failure to review the medical records. So the Joint Commission recommends the following steps to reduce um, the risks of this. Uh, mark the site as close and as clear as possible to the actual surgical site. Use radiographic imaging when it is not possible to mark the actual surgical site. And make sure the site marking is visible during all key steps of the procedure. And there were some more specific tips by AORN for this last part that I found. They suggested refining the site marking process to be more accurate and visible. And surgeries in Areas where there are multiples of the same body parts, such as fingers, toes, or spine, are at the highest risk for wrong site surgery, which makes sense. And for example, for fingers, the marking, often it'll be placed on the wrist. Um, say it's, uh, you know, your third finger or something. You might put that on the wrist rather than right on the surgical site. But they suggest if you can, actually marking the site at the finger, for example, or if you have to mark it at the wrist, add an arrow maybe pointing to that specific finger. Um, when marking a site that is not visible, such as a part of the spine or some internal organs, have the radiographic image up in the OR and review this imaging as a team to double-check and triple-check um, surgical site accuracy prior to the incision and um, during the procedure. And be sure the site marking is always visible, that it isn't covered by the drape or obstructed in some other way when you're doing your timeout. So, uh, Sue, I thought that this was to be a, a good segue into a conversation about the importance of timeouts, the importance of, you know, as you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a proper site marking. Um, it continues to be. I, I don't. I feel like I'm talking about this a lot. I can't remember if it's mm -hmm. been on the podcast or if I'm just having a lot of conversations with our clients about this. Um, but it continues to be uh, a major issue in in uh, surgical teams. Um, uh, operating room teams not taking these timeouts seriously. Yeah, and it's an it's not a very common thing to happen the wrong site surgery, right. but you know it's so awful when it does yeah. that you know or which we'll talk about a little bit later the the near misses. So and and it's it's an easily resolved problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It only takes you you know less yeah. than a minute usually to take that timeout. Um, and of course, I mean if that doesn't scare people enough, the, the possible ramifications. It is something that every surveyor will look at. So, mm -hmm. um, so it, when you look at the accreditation standards, we didn't. Uh, uh, look at every single yeah. accrediting organization, but we looked at the two, you know, the two of the major ones, Joint Commission and, and AAAC. Uh, but they do refer back to the WHO, you know, the World Health Organization. And, and we're all familiar with the World Health Organization's, uh, you know, safety standards re related to uh, uh, site markings, et cetera, and, and, and safety in the operating room. Uh, so I'm going to provide a link to, you know, several toolkits. There's a lot of great information there just to remind everybody. I, I would really recommend that you do an in-service uh, mm -hmm. To all of your staff on this issue, and perhaps Sue, we we probably it would be a good thing to have like a staff edition uh, of this in in the future. But yeah. um, it was just too important to even wait to, for a, a much more in depth conversation. Yeah, and they do they refer to to nationally recognized standards, so it could be who it could be, uh, ARN. I mean, there there are different right. 
or, or some states like New York has its own standards mm-hmm. uh, which have to be complied with. So let's uh, let's start with AAAC. The AAAC V42 handbook li- lists five important steps. Uh, and again, even even if you're not AAAC accredited, these steps would be very helpful for you to to remember. Um, so prior to surgery or procedure involving a level or laterality, the site is marked. Uh, written site marking policy should be present. You know, all of your staff should be educated on that site marking policy so that they're aware of of what a site mark would look like and the importance of making sure that marking is done prior to the patient going into the operating room. And the policy includes uh, the organization's definition of a surgical team. In other words, who is involved in that team and who's going to be part of that timeout. The patient or their authorized representative is, of course, involved in the site marking process prior to the administration of any sedatives or any anesthesia. And the site is marked by the person performing the procedure, this is important, or by the, uh, their designated member of the surgical team who will be present during the timeout. So, for example, you know, I've heard people ask, well, can my PA do it? Well, Yes, as long as the PA is going to be present in the operating room and we'll verify that, you know, they were doing that. It's really not advisable. I mean, I really think that it's important that whoever is actually mm-hmm. doing the surgery be that person. But uh, at least the standards from AAAC does allow that. And clinical records contain documentation of the site marking. So there should be documentation, you know, that the site mark was performed, when it was performed, uh, and, and where, as well as documentation of the, uh, of the timeout. And <coughs> and they did mention that that standard does not apply if no procedures involving level or laterality are performed, of course. And for the Joint Commission, um, here's their statement on that. The procedure site is marked by a licensed independent practitioner who is ultimately accountable for the procedure and will be present when the procedure is performed. In limited circumstances, a licensed independent Practitioner may delegate site markings to an individual who is permitted by the organization to participate in the procedure and has the following qualifications. And I did not list them all, but just know that you have to, it has to be very specifically designated to a particular person. Um, and I just do want to mention we didn't do an exhaustive search for everything, site marking and, and all of these things. So, of course, you know, check your own uh, regulations. And, and your accreditation standards, yes. depending, if yes. you have a different organization, as well as the. Uh, any state change, any state requirements. Um, it, this is probably a good time to mention the importance of educating your staff on the on the importance of uh, of reporting near misses when uh, when the the surgical team has identified the you know or stopped mm-hmm. a surgery from occurring on the wrong site prior to it actually happening. And, and I think often when those things happen, there's this uh, tendency not to make a big deal out of it mm-hmm. or not to report it. And yet, these near misses are great opportunities mm-hmm. for learning, uh, and and you should instead of you know punishing people for mm-hmm. a- almost doing the wrong side surgery, you should be praising them for catching catching it and and passing on you know that knowledge that came from it. So, uh, and in fact, you know as we've talked about many times before, AAAC actually uh, encourages it so much that they really tell you that it should be uh, considered a, you know a good catch, and mm-hmm. that people mm-hmm. should be praised for catching these things beforehand. Yeah, and, and again, uh, I cannot overemphasize the importance of a good timeout where everybody stops, including mm-hmm. the anesthesiologist, acknowledges what's going on, pay attention. And that means everybody on that team and everybody on that team, you know, right down to, you know, the surgical tech uh, must be empowered to stand up and, mm-hmm. and say, wait a minute, I, I just want to be clear about this um, and yeah. and feel like there's not going to be any repercussions for, you know, for speaking up during surgery, even if they were wrong. 
mm-hmm. they should be encouraged to you know ask those questions and uh, yeah. and certainly we as surveyors will keep be keeping a close eye definitely and I think you can tell when people have not done yeah. a timeout when they're doing it for you, then, you know, if everybody's kind Great of awkward survey. and wait, what do we, you know. Yeah, no, it's very obvious know. when you're not used to doing it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and again, uh, the, the ramifications of, uh, of wrong site surgery can be uh, pretty serious. And, and even, you know, among our, you know, 80 some odd clients, there's, you know, wrong site surgery, wrong site surgery mm-hmm. on, a, on a regular basis, you know, at least once a year in our organization. So uh, just because uh, it's never happened to you before doesn't mean that it can't happen. Yeah. So, Sue, the degree scam came about, uh, yes. came out again. So why don't you talk about <laughs> recent developments in our de- okay. degree scam situation? So in Becker's from June 28th, um, some of the nurses who have been having to surrender their licenses due to that nursing degree scam um, where some people were able to obtain fake transcripts, um, say that they actually did attend classes and believe they were attending a legitimate school. You know, they paid for it. They did their clinicals. They did all of that. So, I, you know, it's I guess they didn't of, do a background check on I, the school or didn't check to see if it was accredited. Well, no, the, the one person actually said they did look and it was listed on the, you know, state, whatever, yeah. um, the state site. So I'm not quite sure what happened there. Maybe they were selling some transcripts, but everybody's being lumped together. So yeah. it's just a nightmare for those nurses for the people that hired the fake nurses and everybody trying to sort it out. So hopefully they'll get that all figured out. But it just goes to show why you have to. I don't know how you would have figured it out anyways, yeah. even doing you know all the background checks, but it just really points out that importance. Yeah, I have, you know, background checks both for credentialing people mm-hmm, as well mm-hmm. as your employees. Yeah. And I saw a report in WPTV in West Palm Beach. A nurse who worked at an outpatient surgery center in Florida was just sentenced to four years in prison, which will be followed by three years of supervision. She was convicted of tampering with medical-grade fentanyl. From February to April of 2022, she had removed the fentanyl from almost 450 vials um, for her own personal use, and then she refilled the vials with saline and put them back on the shelves um, to be used with patients. So those patients obviously wouldn't have you know, gotten very good pain control and I kind of looked a little further in, in some other articles about this case. They mentioned that she had had her license temporarily suspended in 2012 when she tested positive for fentanyl. And, and she has gone through a drug and alcohol treatment program in the past, but that, um, you know, they've had to look into that. Now the, now the surgery center where she worked had put out a you know, press release or whatever and said that it, it didn't cause any patient harm, but it certainly could because they they wouldn't be getting the pain control and maybe they monitored enough they knew to give more but um, yeah again you know, it, it shows the importance of being very vigilant uh, obviously um, mm-hmm. you know they figured this out uh, we yeah. don't have any details uh, about this but it never assume anybody is above you know yeah. misappropriation um, you know watch for any of the warning signs in your organization is the pain control not happening as right. as regularly as you think it will. Then maybe look at it, and, and and I think also educating your your staff mm-hmm. about keeping an eye out for other individuals and and any potential problems. It would be hard to believe that somebody, well, I, they were. It sounds like they did find it very quickly here, um, but it yeah. you know just uh, be very uh, uh, careful and diligent and make mm-hmm. sure your staff knows to look for these things. Yeah, and in Becker's ASC review from today, um, they mentioned a physician in Ohio who was convicted this week for illegal distribution of opioids. It was found that the number of pills he prescribed to the patient was dependent on the amount that they paid for their visit. Um, 
So they didn't say selling, but, you know, it sounds pretty close. The drugs prescribed were opioids and benzodiazepines, and he was found to be aware of reports of the patients selling drugs that he had prescribed, so it seemed he was aware of it. Um, he hasn't been sentenced yet, but could face up to 20 years in prison for each of the 11 counts that he was convicted of. Well, I saw a lot of news this time about drugs and uh, yeah. you know diversion and, and things like that. Again, shows the importance of uh, really keeping a very close eye on that. Sue, the, the trend and the need for uh, transitioning from paper to EMRs is uh, getting a lot of attention lately. And um, we've been doing some studies on it. We do know that uh, we think that about half of the centers in the United States are still on paper. And, and I will tell you, Sue, you know, as a surveyor, I love my paper, mm. uh, I got to admit, when it comes to medical records, but that is uh, certainly uh, becoming less the norm. Mm. Uh, and uh, so we uh, we reached out to our friends over at uh, Surgical Information Systems, and we sat down with uh, Heather uh, Hayes a couple months ago uh, to discuss some of the things to consider when looking into EMR. So uh, we're going to have that interview in the second segment. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk to Heather Hayes from uh, SIS about things to consider when looking into EMRs. When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With Revenue Cycle Services from SIS, you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. SIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, claim preparation and submission, claim management, accounts receivable management, billing follow-up, month-end reconciling and closing processes, standard and customized reporting, and patient portion due and or balance management. By doing the heavy lifting, CIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the CIS RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor, analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoy these results from CIS Revenue Cycle Services every month. Faster claim submission, shorter time to pay, improved AR follow-up, higher net collections, expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit CISFIRST.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at CIS can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's CISFIRST.com to learn more about CIS Revenue Cycle Services. So I'm here with Heather Hayes with SIS. Uh, Heather, uh, you and I have, uh, we, we probably spent as much time as we're going to talk during this interview uh, beforehand, getting prepared for it with different things. So we this is such an exciting topic. So uh, welcome to the podcast. 
Well, John, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I don't know if this relates to podcasts, but I feel like longtime listener, first time caller, or does that only apply to radio? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and and this topic is so timely right now. Basically, what uh, what we need to to delve into today is is you know how do you uh, choose an EMR system or why? I mean, actually, going back a little, uh, one step back, why should you be looking into this? And what is the penetration right now? And then what are the steps to go through? Uh, and I thought, you know, you, you can read all kinds of notes in the uh, on the internet about how to do it, but to talk to somebody that does this day in day out is a great way to uh, to kind of figure out the uh, the process and to be prepared for everything that's going to happen. Because you know, one thing we know for sure is that none of us that are in the ASC industry are experts in technology. We can barely run our you know, our, our laptops, uh, let alone, you know, an EMR, uh, which is much more complicated. Well, I mean, I think that one of the keys is to be sure that you select a great partner with your vendors to help ensure that all the decision criteria um, are discussed up front um, and to be able to help the facility drive the business that you're running, not worry about the technology and let your partner take care of that. So I think that that's probably first and foremost, at least that's what would be top of mind for me if I were in that decision seat. Well, let's start by talking about where we are with EMRs in the United States. I mean, uh, we've talked about this before that, you know, the penetration is not as high as you would expect it to be. As a matter of fact, if we were to compare, you know, the different types of providers, uh, I would argue that ASCs might be one of the lower penetration rates right now. Uh, just looking at, you know, our, for, for example, our clients, our listeners in general, uh, that penetration rate is not so high. Now there are, you know, pockets obviously that ha have a high rate. But where are we with right with uh, moving toward EMRs in the ASC setting? Yeah, well, great point. Um, different care settings do have higher penetration rates, mainly because there have been um, legislative incentives as well as financial incentives and mandates, right? Um, that kind of dictated the adoption of EMR in different care settings versus the ASCs. Um, and if you look at it broadly, kind of seeking through different um, sources of information like ASC Focus or Becker's ASC, it's approximately 50 to 60% of ASCs that are using an EMR. So um, I think that that's an interesting number given that there aren't those others in other incentives that we mentioned. Um, I would also say though, that in my experience, the majority of our de novo facilities in the industry are electing to adopt an EMR from inception, which is very promising. And there continues to be a growing appetite for electronic medical record adoption in outpatient settings for a variety of different reasons. And so let's talk about those reasons too. There's so much going on right now. There's a need for data, obviously. What do you think are the biggest drivers moving people in the direction of an electronic medical record? So yeah, there are a number of different drivers. Um, there are a few major ones that come to mind um, as well as some secondary features that are, are becoming more and more important. So I think, you know, some of the major reasons that ASCs are looking for EMR adoption are the ability to automate uh, data capture through the use of patient portals, as well as elimination of manual charting processes. So for example, vitals capture. Yeah. Um, and so looking for ways that they can automate that data to make it more accurate and more efficient, but also being able to produce comprehensive, compliant, and legible patient records. So as you know, that's helpful in a variety of ways. In the most day-to-day -day sense, being able to find a chart, right, is simple to look up versus physically searching for where that chart might be located. So that's on the day-to-day, -day, but that 
adds an even more significant value um, when there's a survey or an inspection happening and records need to be easily attainable. So that's a major um, motivator. Improving patient safety is another one, um, really by putting the focus on the patient and not the documentation. And then improving compliance with um, chart completion by making it convenient and easy to complete medication reconciliation and op notes, among other things. And then in more timely manner, um, there are a huge consideration with respect to um, staffing in our industry, really more specifically staffing shortages. So more and more I'm hearing from facilities that really want to look at ways that adopting an EMR can reduce their clinical staff time on tests from everything from nursing pre-op phone calls to vitals capture and surgeon operative notes. Um, and also um, staff and surgeons who have entered the workforce in recent years may be unfamiliar or uncomfortable documenting on paper. Um, and actually, instead of preferring, they might actually expect uh, electronic documentation. So that mindset increasingly applies to veteran team members as well. And our physicians, our surgeons are really heavily relying on mobile devices for a variety of different tasks, not just charting, not just their management of cases in the ASC. Um, and leveraging an EMR gives surgeons information in their pocket, in their mobile device, um, you know, for things such as reviewing their case details prior to surgery to ensure that they're best prepared for the patients and the cases that are ahead, but also keeping track real time on the location of patients and progression of cases throughout the day. And then they can review, reconcile and sign off on a number of outstanding items like op notes and orders and case attachments and things like that. Um, and there are even features to remind surgeons of uncompleted items so that they can stay on top of tasks that they, that they need to accomplish. And really, ultimately, reliance on paper could prove to be an obstacle and not just um, retention, but recruitment of new surgeons to a facility. And I have some additional thoughts, but I just gave you a lot. So I think I'll pause. Well, I'm going to focus on a couple, actually. Uh, well, and one of my pet peeves, which is a surveyor I run into a lot, is uh, signing off on that pathology. I, you know, I, I have to cite that so many times in, in uh, non-electronic on paper records where, uh, you know, the doctors have not signed off on that pathology, a problem easily solved in um, an electronic medical record. But I want to go back to, I want to go to something which I think you touched on, but anesthesia right now, you know, anesthesia relies on a lot of data coming off of those monitors and, and uh, you know, being able to get that data into the computer without actually them having to use a pen and paper for all that and instead being able to focus on the patient. Don't you think that's kind of an important thing too, is a little bit more focus on the patient in, in that area in particular, as opposed to the chart? Yes, absolutely. Um, the automation of anesthesia um, information um, can be a game changer in the OR because it does allow for anesthesiologists and CRNAs to focus on the patient um, because that information is then automated. And having a lot of features that allow for those providers to be able to review the chart real time. Um, again, not having to pull out a piece of paper, they can actually pull up records, they can take a look at assessments um, that have occurred before they've engaged with the patient, um, they can add their notes and relay them on to the next department. Yes, absolutely. Um, the anesthesia experience is certainly improved with an EMR. And we can actually read the records, which is always a challenge with a paper record from an anesthesiologist. 
Well, I think across the board, the uh, importance of having a legible record um, is significantly improved, right, um, it, with the adoption of an EMR. And certainly, as you mentioned, right, having pathology, an example, or having completed op notes from an audit perspective uh, is clearly a concern, but also from a billing perspective to be sure that the record is full, full and complete. Um, and that the appropriate codes are, are being built out for the case to ensure um, optimal reimbursement. Um, so that also helps improve uh, e EMR adoption, helps improve that communication through revenue cycle as well, because the information that they're looking for is immediately accessible to them as again, opposed to having to seek out a paper chart or having to read through maybe something that's not quite legible or potentially missing that they have to go find. Yeah, and and one could make an argument too, especially on the revenue cycle side, that uh, you uh, you're you're going to be able to bill faster. You're going to be more accurate with that information. There's not going to be so much a delay as you're trying to get additional information, since all of that is going to be available uh, as Absolutely. you uh, uh, allow it to the person that's doing the coding and billing. Absolutely, it just it improves the overall communication throughout the life cycle of not just the patient's experience at the ASC, but the information exchange between the different departments and uh, resources within the facility. And I would also argue, and this is actually, uh, we, we talked about this in a couple conferences lately, when, you, when all of your data is in electronic format, being able to pull that data together and pull it for quality improvement uh, information, quality improvement studies, being able to uh, do research on start times, end times, when all that information is electronically entered, that makes your job a lot easier when you're trying to uh, uh, to improve productivity, improve the quality of care in the organization, provide a lot of data to the quality improvement committee. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And in addition, um, peer review. Peer review becomes a much more efficient and easy process because again, it's legible. It's, it's either complete or it's not. It's not subjective because right. the information is there. Um, and so that that becomes one consideration. And then, you know, the overall um, continuous improvement mindset in, in an ASC, like you said, when the documentation is electronic, uh, regardless of which discipline you're looking at, um, whether it's patient experience improvement, um, the physician's overall satisfaction and their improvement and peer review process, auditing, quality, um, we could probably spend time just talking about data relative to EMR adoption and how much how much more data is available for decision criteria. So before we started recording, you and I were talking about a horror story recently of a, a particular center that decided to uh, like literally start an EMR system overnight, um, which uh, is never a good idea, by the way. It's never going to end well. Uh, in that situation. So so that brings up the, the, the question, how long should you expect to, uh, first of all, research a proper EMR system? And, and then you and I are actually going to have another uh, interview a little bit later when we talk about the implementation, but we can give them a little bit of a flavor of, of you know, uh, of how long this whole process is going to take, because it's not going to be overnight, like our particular client, mutual client that decided they were going to do it. Uh, what What are so let's just start with how long should it take uh, in the beginning there just to identify a system? Sure. Um, I think that most folks who work in the AC industry have had some exposure in researching EMR overall, um, whether it be that they've worked in a different care setting and they've had exposure there, they've read about it on social media or perhaps on the news. Um, so they've had some exposure, but the answer to how long it'll take will really vary based on the facility's needs and goals 
how much time they need to spend researching um, and how focused and serious they are in that evaluation. So I, I would say that it, it takes generally a few months to research and compare vendors before making a decision. Most ASC MR vendors have decision support information readily available. So that's the great part is, is doing a little bit of homework up front to determine which vendors you'd like to pursue, reaching out to them to ask them for that decision support information. And when you get the right vendor and partner aligned, um, as you're going through that evaluation process, they should be able to supply that information rather than you having to um, seek it out on your own, just for the groundwork, because certainly you're going to do some additional research beyond that. But certainly that will help you decide in advance what type of features and technologies and goals and priorities you might have for your facility in your selection criteria. So very important question, of course, is who are the stakeholders? Who are the who are the individuals that should be making these decisions? Who should be included in the uh, in the evaluation of that system? Because I know you have some very strong feelings about that. <laughs> I do. We were talking about it a little ahead of our recording today, but um, I, really um, key stakeholders in my mind should be involved in that initial assessment and facility super users, the folks that will be involved in driving the project once it's started and assisting others at the facility um, during the adoption period should be brought into the discussion as the process evolves to ensure that there's a buy-in among all the stakeholders and super users in terms of both the vendor selection as well as the goals and the timeframes for adoption right from the start. Um, That generally sets up a facility for success um, to ensure that Um, one, like I said, that buy-in is there, but two, that the super users feel that their voices are being heard because oftentimes the success of the adoption for the facility falls on their shoulders. So having their voices heard and having them be part of at least that final stage of the selection would be super helpful. Plus having their professional experience and input will yield dividends to the key stakeholders or executives making the decisions. Um, so I, I think that that would be my strong recommendation that key stakeholders are involved in that initial phase and then they bring folks who will be super users in in the later phases of selection. And how important is it to bring the physicians and the anesthesiologists and CRNAs into it? I think it's incredibly important. I mean, certainly there are a number of different um, interest groups or stakeholders, if you will, at different facilities based on Uh, you know, a number of factors concerning um, the organization itself. Um, But I think it's really important to be sure that when making this decision that we recognize that the clinical staff are the ones that will be using the EMR tool. And we want to be sure that we have physician and nurse and anesthesia um, champions amongst the folks that are involved in helping make the adoption a success. So I think it's very important. Yeah, you 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 said a word there. I think is important to emphasize that champion. We use that a lot in quality improvement. You know, who who's going to be the physician that's going to be the the uh, the peer review champion or the uh, the timeout champion or or whatever. But yeah, you're going to have to find somebody that's going to be passionate about this because that uh, and that's going to speed up the process. Uh, I think. I I agree. And I think I'm probably getting a little ahead of our conversation overall if we're going in chronologic order and we're just at selection now, but. Um, as facilities go into adoption mode, right? So they get past, I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but they get past the selection criteria. They've determined what vendor they want to use and they're now in adoption phase. There are so many tools available within an EMR adoption. And so there may be different projects or facets of it that you want to align to different resources. So 
For example, there are features that are uniquely positioned for an anesthesiologist or surgeon. And so having a physician champion for those areas right. um, creates a scenario where, you know, think of it as uh, as working in an office and you have a trusted peer who's down, down the hall or around the corner from you that you can tap on their shoulder and ask a question without having to ask a broader audience. Most folks are willing to do that more so than to go to, to someone who's not a peer. So I, I strongly encourage having uh, people in particular roles or user roles, if you will, um, identified within the project. Certainly they may not be involved from start to finish, but particularly when end user training comes up toward the end of an onboarding or implementation project, we wanna be sure that we've got folks that are going to help their peers and help make the facilities um, adoption a success. When choosing a, an EMR, um, how important is it to get the uh, the individuals that are researching it to actually see real life implementation of it? Uh, you know, going out and visiting other centers, for example, or at least talking to other centers. How how do you think that process should work? Um, I think that that is a super helpful aspect of of decision criteria. And in one facet, I think that in in the process of evaluating vendors, um, the decision committee from the facility should certainly seek out references to be able to connect with folks that are already using the product um, and to get their real world experience, not not just with the use of the product, but how was their onboarding or implementation experience? And were there any challenges that they experienced that they know now how they could have avoided? Um, And then um, overall, they can have that connection happen through phone calls, certainly. Um, but many times um, facilities are willing to host each other uh, right. so that you have the opportunity to see the product in use and how facilities are leveraging it in different ways. Um, so I think that that can be helpful um, in terms of evaluation, but then also longer term strategy from a networking perspective. Yeah. And, and also making sure that you have a good conversation about the uh, the other organization's experience with customer service. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, when you're making a decision to implement any type of software, and certainly with EMR, um, you want to be certain that you understand the vendor that you're doing business with, and what types of product, not just the product, but also the services, right? So, you know, we're kind of focusing today on implementation or onboarding. um, And that's when the project's getting off the ground and getting live. But then after the facility is live on the EMR, what does customer support look like? what are the services that they provide um, and other features and benefits that you have from the vendor that you select? So Heather, uh, you, you, you brought up a subject that's kind of, kind of a passion with me, making sure that you identify people that you can uh, call up, uh, you know, not just the vendor, but other people that might be going through the experience, especially if you're dealing with specialty specific items. Uh, you know, we know ASCA, you know, the state associations, uh, any other conferences you might go into are great opportunities to, uh, uh, to network with other people. And, and don't you think that's kind of important too, is, is identify other people that are using the software. You know, in the old days, we used to call them user groups. Today, it's often, you know, just informal relationships between people that are are passionate about the software that they're working with. Yeah, I, certainly there are, as you said, so many resources available through state associations and networking there. Um, certainly through ASCA, going to the ASCA conference, um, many vendors will 
um, including the one that I work for, will host events during ASCA or just before, just after, to ensure that there's an opportunity for not just networking, but also learning, um, providing uh, learning opportunities during those engagements work really well. Um, but as I mentioned, kind of during that initial diligence process of selecting a vendor, those relationships can build and become part of your personal network right from the start. Um, so I absolutely encourage folks to leverage those opportunities. Like you said, there are times to connect with facilities who may be of a similar size or um, specialty organization uh, that would help benefit both groups um, as you progress with your adoption and both groups continue to evolve their use of an EMR it can be very helpful. That's great. We also were talking uh, before we started the interview uh, about some interesting uh, sidelines here, and that is, uh, you know, the other things that you're going to have to be aware of as you're choosing an EMR provider. Uh, we were talking specifically, I mean, one thing that I know nurses are going to be very concerned about is, okay, what happens when the computer goes down? What happens when the internet goes down? You know, the, those super users, when they're uh, having these conversations, are going to want to have an answer to that, even before you know, you choose that system. So you had some very specific, actually very interesting advice uh, uh, as we were talking earlier about that. What what are your thoughts there? Well, um, kind of first pass is to say that, you know, my experience working with folks in the AC industry is that you don't always, you don't just have plan A and plan B, you usually have plan C. That's right. Um, right. And that comes to a variety of different topics in the AC space. But um, certainly with regard to business continuity, um, if you are uh, electing to go with a vendor that's truly cloud-based, you want to be sure that you understand, A, that it is truly cloud-based, but B, also understand what your business continuity plan looks like in the event that there is, as you said, a Wi-Fi outage at the facility um, or some other concern that's impacting your ability to access the MR. Um, so when I talk to facilities, oftentimes I'll um, encourage them to look at their technology stack that they currently have. For example, if they provide cell phones or have other types of service through a vendor of that nature, they can add additional devices um, like tablets that have 5G access um, and add that to part of their business continuity plan. With that being said, um, as part of that plan and a part of their EMR adoption strategy is ensuring that um, surgeons and other users that are able to access mobile platforms with their EMR, that they have access to cell phones and are familiar with how to use those mobile devices because in the event of an outage like that, those cell phones now become mobile tools for them to keep the business moving that will complement tablets that have 5G service that could be given to key users within the organization to keep things moving while IT may troubleshoot an issue with the Wi-Fi, or if um, there's a power outage, assuming these devices are charged, that's a key piece of that BCP or business continuity plan is to make sure we have charging ability. Um, so the idea being that your plan B is to have a digital plan B to be able to capture data still digitally in your EMR, um, to keep things moving and not have to slow down your process. And then plan C, lastly, is to just have a backup plan in the event that A and B are completely unavailable and you still need to proceed with, with charting, um, to have a paper chart available to just use as plan C in the worst case scenario that you need to finish up maybe cases if there's a full power outage and you're just working from generator backup, chances are good you're wrapping up what you need to do to um, 
right? So you want to be sure that you're going to uh, have your documentation put in place on paper, but then you have to have that plan to be sure that that information makes its way to the EMR when the issue is resolved. We, you and I were talking a little bit before, again, we, we had such a long conversation beforehand <laughs> and I appreciate that because it really uh, brought some, uh, some questions that I, uh, I don't think I originally planned on, on asking, but one concern I think you're going to find with the more seasoned nurses might be that movement away from that personal touch to, uh, you know, having a computer in front of you. We were mentioning that, you know, sometimes people that have been doing paper for so long, they can make it look so much like they're not really spending much time with that paper and totally focusing on the patient. And yet when you got a computer screen between you and that patient, that really can put a different flavor on, on that interaction. Um, have you had any you know thoughts on that or any I, I know you do because we talked about it beforehand, but <laughs> what what you know what are your thoughts there and and how do you uh, especially you know you of course are are, are often a, a contact uh, when people are searching out systems uh, you know how do you how do you deal with that when you're talking to uh, to the those super users, the nurses? Uh, sure. I mean, I have a lot of professional experience um, that certainly builds a lot of empathy for that change management. Um, but as I shared with you before we started today, my mom is a nurse and my sister and I both work in healthcare IT. And when she and her facility were going through her first EMR adoption, we we would give her kind of after hour support. And it definitely landed a different level of empathy with it being my mom. Um, and, and in that process and, and in my professional experience as well, in particular nurses, but many clinical um, staff members have this rote memory of they have used the same layout on paper for a number of years. And so they often don't even have to look at the paper while they're charting, right? Because they're making eye contact with the patient and they just know where the information needs to ride just based on where their hand is falling down the page. And there is a change management process when you take that form away, whether we were to change the paper form or move them into an EMR, um, there's change management that happens. And it certainly takes some time to develop that rote memory. Um, certainly, I can tell you that I've had nurses share with me as like per diem or PRN staff that they can walk in and chart the same day the same day that they come in um, because the basic function doesn't take long to pick up and understand it's it's that process of developing that rote, rote memory and understanding. And that that can take anywhere from two to four weeks, depending on the person. Uh, but after that period of time, it just becomes secondary. And then the other thing I would say is that's for a typical, uh, a typical nurse doing charting. Um, but certainly like a director of nursing, um, someone that's in a more senior position where they might be responsible, say, for we were talking before about quality reporting, uh, where they might have like a monthly or quarterly report that they need to run, or perhaps they're doing some retrospective on charting. Um, some of those things that are not done on a daily basis might take a little bit longer to learn two, two to three months, again, depending on how frequently they're going through that motion. Um, but I can tell you that my colleagues in particular, we talk about this a lot, is that part of our responsibility is to provide the knowledge of the software. But the other part of it is to have an empathy and understanding for that psycho that psychology or change management piece, um, because it just takes a little time to move through the motions and, and have it feel like second nature again. 
Heather, thank you so much for your time. Uh, now we're we're not done. No, we're done with this interview, but we are. Uh, we're going to get together and we're going to talk a little bit about the next step, which is onboarding, which will be just as exciting, I'm sure. And uh, I can't wait to uh, to do that. But thanks for your time today, John. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff, and other events in the ASC industry. So the Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Center's annual conference and trade show is going to be July 19th through the 21st at the Lowe's Portofino Bay Hotel in uh, Universal in Orlando. The Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and the South Carolina Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's joint semi-annual conference and trade show is August 17th and 18th at the Hyatt Regency Savannah in Savannah, Georgia. One of my favorite cities. Um, the Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's 2023 annual meeting will be August 24th through the 25th at the Hyatt Lodge in Oak Brook, Illinois. And I'll be speaking at the conference, and uh, we might even try to fit in a special episode there, depending upon uh, the availability of space. The Ohio Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's annual education conference and exhibit is September 19th through the 20th at the Hilton Polaris in Columbus, Ohio. And we'll have a special episode, including interviews with some of the speakers. We're both going to be there. Right. And the California Ambulatory Surgery Association Conference and Exhibits is September 13th through the 15th at the Portola Hotel and Spa in the Monterey Bay Inn in Monterey, California. The Idaho Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference is September 21st and 22nd at the Hilton Garden Inn in Boise, downtown. And the New York State Association Ambulatory Surgery Center's 2023 annual conference will be held October 4th through the 6th at the Desmond Hotel in Albany, New York. I will be speaking and moderating some of the sessions, and we, of course, as always, will have a special episode, uh, including some interviews. And the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show is November 9th and 10th at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. John will be speaking there, and we hope to have a special episode with interviews. And don't forget about our upcoming boot camps. The July Administrators Boot Camp is July 11th through the 14th, coming up very soon. Mm -hmm. um, and the August Business Office Manager Boot Camp, the first one ever, yep. is going to be August 8th through the 11th. Uh, for more information about that, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. And, of course, our recorded events are all available on ASCPodcast.com. The Credentialing Conference, the Fall 2022 Finance and Accounting Conference, the Conditions for Coverage Conference, the Medical Director Conference, and the on-demand versions of the Nursing and Administrator Boot Camps. Don't forget about our patron member program, also known as ASC Central. It's an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, uh, and uh, access to AEU credits. And uh, membership helps defray the cost of producing the podcast, including research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, please visit ASCPodcast.com.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. We hope you found the discussion informative and engaging. If you did, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'd like to give a special shout-out to our amazing team who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, of course, is Sue Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team of Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, Ann Geyer, and Diana Powell. We couldn't do this without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. And we look forward to bringing you more exciting discussions and insights in future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.